Hi, this is Graham Brown and welcome to the Excel Podcast. The Excel Podcast is a platform for the bigger conversations about leadership in the 2020s. Who's leading? How are they leading? And what stories do they have to share? Through the stories of leaders, we'll address the big challenges of our times from the era of AI to the Asian century to nurturing a new generation of entrepreneurs. If you're enjoying these conversations, subscribe to the podcast at xlpodcast.org. Welcome to the XL Podcast. We start this conversation describing the thrill of riding off-piste as a ski instructor. And that's when the fear and the exhilaration that comes with riding the risk transcends into magic. So much of life happens in these gaps. Some of us, yes, prefer a quiet, predictable life, while others seek challenge and constant evolution. My next guest on the podcast, Paul Rupert, is definitely in the second group. And what Paul brings to the table in business is a rare quality. I call it range. Range is the ability to see patterns, identify predictable characteristics, and make sense of fast-moving, fragmented markets. It's horizontal experience as opposed to vertical expertise. And whilst vertical specialists may build out the building blocks of technology in any industry, it's those with the horizontal range that have their eye on where that technology is taking us. And from his early experiences selling hi-fi on the East Coast to building out billion-dollar messaging startups that spanned both the US and Asia, Paul's career has been one of constant evolution and surprises. Every time I talk with Paul and dig into his story, I discover a new rabbit hole. He met four US presidents, graduated from Harvard, holds two interoperability patents in messaging, none of which he'll tell you unless you gently twist his arm. And there are a few more that you'll also enjoy in this podcast. If you enjoy stories, then you're going to enjoy this next podcast with my special guest, Paul Rupert. So I'm sitting with a man who has served under four or met four US presidents. You've grown businesses from effectively zero to billion dollar valuations. And for those that don't know, Paul is also a qualified ski instructor. To put all that into context, Paul, what I want you to do is describe to us the feeling when you're tackling, taking on one of the toughest downhill pieces routes on skiing that would be off piste or black slope whatever it is diamond slope if you go beyond black whatever you call it yeah, what is that feeling when you're exactly on the edge? as you put it um yeah uh wow well there's anticipation in the context of you're looking downhill um and uh even in that context you then start to take uh, at least an initial plan of where you want to go and being prepared for it and then you just touch the mystery jump into the void mm. take What's off the mystery that's right <laughs> and after that it's all about um you know to mix metaphors here from skiing to uh, surfing you surf the wave mm. you adjust relative to the terrain and uh, the senses uh, whether it's gravity speed wind sound and then your own movements that uh, are ingrained in terms of what you've done for years and years and years. I I've been skiing uh, over 50 years. Wow. So. Well, what goes on inside your head that doesn't go on inside my head when I attempt 
even one of the most basic downhills. What was the difference in terms of your thought processes and your muscle memory? Well, at base, it's about training. Uh, first time I went skiing, my, my mother threw me into a ski school. I was five years old. Uh, five. And yeah. Uh, but I have to say, I've taught four-year-olds. Mm. I've taught four-year-olds that <laughs> have no fear and uh, just have a sense of adventure uh, and an exhilaration from that. I once lost a four-year-old going up a mountain. <laughs> lost in the sense that she went too far in the class, got ahead of the class, and there were about four or five of us. And um, she went up on the lift by herself with someone else, and at least I could follow her. And, um, you know, uh, so lost, that was the context. It wasn't, you know, we're talking about a lift that may have been 300, 400 feet, uh, you know, because I teach at a place uh, in suburban Maryland, or mm. I should say rural Maryland. That's all of vertical, maybe 900 feet. Right. So, What's the rush like when you're out there? Uh, in a place like uh, Chamonix, um, incredible. Uh, I, the most noteworthy place I've skied is a place called Les Trois Vallées, the Three Valleys, which is part of uh, Mont Blanc. And mm. what you do is you take a vernicular, you know, a gondola all the way, a large gondola, like 60 people are in it, all the way up to Aiguille du Midi, which is the topmost point of Europe and the top of Mont Blanc. You then hike about half a kilometer, another uh, up distance. You, there, are, there are pictures of people in line who are hiking in ski boots and knapsacks. You have to have a guide. And you have to be a, a fairly uh, good skier. But skiing that between mountain peaks that are thousands of feet high, and you lose sense of vertical because you, what you, your mind and your vision looks like flat is actually mm -hmm. steep. But because everything around you is reframing your perception, you've got to be able to adjust to that. It, it was an incredible four hours which is how long it takes is it dangerous uh yes this is why you have to have a guide because right. there are um fissures in the glaciers because it's all big glacier with snow on top of it and you can fall into the fissures so that's why you have the guide and the guide are are uh, certified rescue skiers you know only in switzerland could you do that as a living <laughs> <laughs> So if you fall into a in, into a crevasse, they haul you out, right. or, and well, they have helicopters it. come in. You know, there was I recall that I saw a helicopter flying by, and you know, you're looking at it, and again, everything is framed differently. What you think is really kind of close is actually quite distant because it's so small. Hmm. You know, it's a couple thousand feet away, and yet it's it's right there. Um, Mind-blowing stuff. That Mind -blowing, was, absolutely. Yeah, that was probably the, the ultimate skiing experience I've had. It also gives us a little bit of insight into you, Paul. Those people that know you have known you from many years in telecoms and communications. And that is a global industry. We've all seen that you've now had experience in France and Switzerland skiing. You know, not the typical... American Absolutely growing not. up. Yeah, right? I'm very lucky, quite privileged. Yeah. 
Well, in the sense that you've had exposure to many different languages and cultures as well. You've done business all around the world. We'll talk about that in a minute as well. But there's these moments, I guess, in your career where you probably had like that mountain vista, surreal moments where you wondered, is this really happening? I'm wondering what it was like meeting a president or whether that was an anticlimax and what it was like doing some of the biggest deals you've ever done, because you've done some pretty hefty deals in your time in growing businesses. Go back you know, to the I, president. Was, was that sort of an understated meeting or was it oh, one of those surreal not. moments? It's surreal in the context of um, I was in my early 20s when I first met uh, Ronald Reagan. Hmm. And that was in the context of um, I, I was a political operative at the time and had been working for a United States senator and had the opportunity to go to a White House reception because it was a connection of a connection. Um, networking is a critical skill in the political world. Um, it kind of created networking. You know, I was mm. following a guy like George Herbert Walker Bush, who in the old days wrote thank you notes by hand um, that had uh, Rolodexes. You know, were of similar age that we experienced those things in mm -hmm. our own career. You know, these little pieces of paper with your name, telephone number, etc. And uh, I had been. I knew somebody who knew somebody and I was able to get an invitation to a reception. And so there he was, I was one of probably 50 to a hundred, I'd say who were in the room, but, uh, was able, you know, he did, he, he did the grip and grin is what we used to call it in the political world, which is he shook everybody's hands down a rope line. Mm. And, um, that was the first. So that was, yeah, that was interesting, but, I also learned in the political world from someone else, you know, one man's ceiling is another man's floor. So what you may think is this is the aspiration but to others. It's like, no, this is the minimum. I need mm -hmm. to go higher. Uh, that wasn't my, uh, you know, plan to go off and meet a whole bunch of different presidents. It just played out that way. Mm -hmm. So we're being surrounded by those people. Did that give you a wider vista on the world and what's possible? Did that open oh, absolutely. Because you were young and you were meeting people who could make things happen, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I was one of those guys who was carrying papers um, or carrying a briefcase behind mm. the principal, as I always used to call him, whoever that principal would be, whether it's a United States senator or whether it's a cabinet secretary um, or, you know, in the case of, in one case, whether it was the president of the United States being part of that entourage, if you will. Um you know, the, the reality of that experience is that uh, you can very quickly become arrogant. That was one of the things that I learned, uh, luckily, um, and was taught in the context of it's all derivative. Um, you know, they talk about six degrees of Kevin Bacon. I hmm. learned ver very early on my first training session with the... Uh, administrative assistant to a United States Senator, which is like the chief operating officer to a Senator's office. And their senators, depending on their, um, their state, as well as their seniority may have upwards of 40 to 50 staffers. And my first day of training was literally he said, you're three calls away from talking to a cabinet secretary. So you need to have that mindset. Mm. You know, and I was like three calls away. What do you mean? Well, 
Okay, if you call, let's say the the Secretary of Housing and Urban Affairs, uh, and say this is Paul Rupert, and I happen to be a legislative assistant to Senator John C. Danforth of Missouri, who is looking at a, an issue relative to enterprise zones in St. Louis and Kansas City. We'd love to have a conversation relative to this piece of legislation. When can the secretary talk to the senator? Hold on, please. <laughs> and then you get moved into some other assistant. And mm. then you start having the discussion. Okay, uh, Jack is interested in X, Y, and Z. And uh, we think this might be something that we'd like to partner up with. How can we manage that? What do you need to do? What do we need to do? And then three weeks later, they have the meeting. And there you go. I wonder what kind of personality survives and thrives in that environment but there's many parallels with operating within telecoms as well because the parallels between telecoms and government organizations is pretty strong I feel, in terms yes. of the way they're structured in terms of scale what, structure systems absolutely speed. no question about what it. what kind of yes. mindset thrives in that because to you know wait three weeks and to get through to the guy to get through to the guy to get through to the secretary of the secretary of the secretary and you know how it works. You've got yeah, to be extremely patient. The bureaucracies. I think you've got to have a certain kind of mindset to win in this environment. What is that? Um, well, certainly resilience and resoluteness relative to the objective. And mm. some people are motivated by, let's say, the policy. Some are motivated, and the policy being, you know, I'm red team, you're blue team, and this is what I think needs to be done relative to the red team objectives and policies. I mean, that's what politics is about. Um, but then there are others who are more interested in the process as well as um, just the objective. Uh, all depends. You know, I always, I started to, um, I got into the to the game um, because I had family members who had run for Congress, including my father, when I was quite, quite, quite young. So that was part of my psyche. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier about my background in the international sphere in business, but it all started off, I happened to be half French. My mother's French. Mm. She used to drag me to Europe when I was six years old to the time that I was 16. Uh, every summer, we'd be there for three to six weeks. And um, first two trips were mostly France and grandparents' house in another part of France called La Rochelle, which is a beautiful city mm. right on the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and then soon thereafter, it became more of the grand tour. Uh, every trip we'd go, we'd always go somewhere else, whether it would be London or Rome uh, or Prague or uh, Scandinavia. And by the time that I was, as I said, a junior in high school at 16, I had a very different perspective of the world than my peers who were part of suburban Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I grew up. Mm. But that served you well, not just in the political sphere, but I think probably more importantly in what came next. We're sort of jumping around a little bit here and I'm very conscious of, I don't want to miss out on the hi-fi story as well. We're going to go back there, <laughs> but it's really important if we fast forward to telecoms and this is where we first met we we met many years ago in barcelona or even can i think at mobile world congress uh, it may have been con i remember going to one of your sessions in barcelona uh, right. when you were still doing that um like telecoms networking uh organization correct which you you were ahead of the curve you know, this was long before LinkedIn and you had just narrowed down and gone really deep. And uh, uh, that's how you and I, and I think your Indian partner, your yeah, guy from the Josh. UK as well. Um, that's how we all got connected. 
nearly 15 years ago. Yeah. Time flies. But back then, if you think about where we were in communications back then, how important networking was, because it was extremely fragmented, wasn't it? You've got these mobile operators, people who are tying up the pipes between all the operators, between countries, between industries. And this is a very fast moving market. People didn't have time to figure stuff out. And you were right in the middle of that. You weren't just working for an operator. You were out there selling to the world effectively. Yeah. The, the things that I was initially doing in the, in the business of all things, I set up kiosks for handset rentals for international travelers going out of San Francisco to mm. other parts of the world. And then that only lasted for about six months, maybe nine months, because the technology jumped ahead where the handsets now had the means to, quote, roam into other international um, GSM destinations, which didn't exist when it first got launched. I then pivoted into being uh, the international roaming director, which is the guy who essentially negotiates the commercial and technical relationships between other operators all around the world. And mm -hmm. how antiquated all this is, is that um, back then, you know, to do that, you had to get on a plane. So I was the doing, irony. Yeah. You know, two week trips into Europe, into back to the US and because I lived in San Francisco at the time and then off to Asia. So that mm. gave me also the scope of understanding of the business at a much higher level than what's going on in your own market. Um, you know, there were seven markets, for example, in California, Nevada hmm. for Pacific Bell Mobile Services, otherwise known as AT&T today. Um, and they were thinking about much more narrow issues than the big picture as to where's the industry going, what are the hmm. things that are being developed. And then I jumped into a startup that um, enabled, became a pioneer in terms of enabling the interoperability of text messaging to go from native GSM format, meaning what was there at the time, to all the non-native formats. And what does that mean in real life to the regular guy? That means that you know you in the UK could send a text message from Vodafone to Verizon. And by the way, Vodafone owned half of Verizon, but up until that point, they couldn't do that. Hmm. And then text messaging became a cultural historical phenomenon where now we have teens of trillions of text messages flowing through the ether mm. every year. And it's roughly about a 250 to $300 billion business globally, which people don't really have, you know, let's say the general public public doesn't have a, a real grasp of this. It's not um, mm. discussed much. It's kind of under the covers, not because there's anything bad about it, but it's just not part of everyday conversation. Well, it was such a common denominator as well, wasn't it, in the early days? And the industry didn't really see the value in it. I mean, if you look at, for those that yeah. don't know, I mean, this is your area more than mine. It's the GSM standard put SMS into the code as a testing tool. And That's I, even, right. I even remember Paul in maybe about 97, 98 receiving a text message and it would say, test ignore <laughs> i thought what was that because people didn't send text messages then and then young people got hold of it and then they did it because it was cheaper than making a 50 cent phone call 
or yeah, dollar if you remember or, Graham back in the day of what we now call a feature phone as opposed to a uh, oh yeah smartphone um you used to get a little envelope uh, mm -hmm. diagram that was in on the screen you know i can't even describe it these were pixels on a screen it was the size of the screen as well like yeah. on the Nokia 3 right <laughs> yeah exactly um and that was an sms that was transmitted to your handset mm. to tell you that you had a the mwi message waiting indicator meaning that you had a voicemail in your voicemail that you should pick up now mm. back in the day we also charged for that because I was the product director for those kind of things. And so, <laughs> you saw the you know, opportunity. Initially, we were charging for it. And ironically, mm. we were able to charge for the message waiting indicator and you being able to tap into your, your voicemail. But we couldn't charge for the actual text messaging because the billing systems didn't have the functionality yet. Mm. Still catching so, up, right? Still yeah. very much. Nobody it saw got it ahead coming. Of everybody. Right. Yeah. And one of the things that I learned about you in later life is I didn't know this side to you, but you have a couple of patents out there just casually dropped in a conversation. It's not what people normally do. I saw you and from your experience as a, a biz dev sales chief revenue officer, but then you had this, oh yeah, I have a couple of patents for GSM interoperability. It's not like your average person has that kind of thing going on. So what was the story with that? Yeah, well, you know, the reality of um, how I got into the business, um, I was looking for an international role in some business and I was talking to an investment banker uh, and this was in New York and um, we were kind of lines converging. It was like, what do you know about mobile telephony and i'm like what do you mean well you know deutsche telecom is going to be auctioning off spectrum that they've been mm -hmm. using for their rail system and we're looking at this now the company was lazard ferrer and lazard ferrer is a french original french based you know in the old days of investment banking field and i got luckily i started looking into it a recruiter called me up that i had been working with and he said there's an opportunity in california which is how i got into the space but i when i got hired and I started, I was like, I don't know anything about this business technologically, nothing. Was, and they were like, that's okay. Nobody else does in the office either. <laughs> I mean, this was Just literally like Dodge you know. City. You know, maybe 300 people that were inside the building and about five of them actually had been in a mobile network operator before with a professional wow. experience. And they were yeah. all from the UK because they all spoke English, you know, and they got hired. And then you know, these were all technologists. And one of them became a very good friend of mine and, and had a great, great career, became the CTO of, um, of uh, Telefonica in the UK. But leading up to that is I realized that if I was going to um, do well at this, I needed to have an understanding of the technology. Hmm. So I learned the technology from the ground up. Um, but you're not a technology guy originally. No, not at all. None. Uh, I mean, I, I took things like physics and calculus. You know, mm. I had a, a wayward entry into college thinking I wanted to go to medical school. And um, that once I failed chemistry my freshman year, I retook it the following year to get that off my record. But, um, you know, I recognized that this was not going to happen. You know, so I changed into uh, something that was more akin to my interests at the time. Mm. What were the patents that you registered? 
So um, again, timing is everything, and uh, the technologies as they are today are a little bit different. But back then, which is now, let's see, around 2005, I recollect, I re recollect now 16 years ago, um, this goes back to the interoperability between the European GSM format and the North American GSM format. We used to mm. call that GSM 800, GSM 1900, and GSM 1800. These were the two, three different radio formats. And, um, you know, I'm a co-author in the context of, I was sitting down with one of the guys who was a technologist. I said, why can't we do it this way? And then we could also imply a business solution as an addition to this because patents in the U.S. and as well as the U.K in EU um, have a format that not only is it a different technical consideration, but a technical, uh, but a different business consideration in mm -hmm. terms of being able to apply for a patent. And uh, we started thinking it out and white draw, whiteboarding it. And, um, you know, an, another guy who's my boss, who's like, you know, we could probably patent that. And therefore that could become an IPR and, uh, you know, intellectual property asset for the company. So let's pursue that. Because we were a startup, and that was one of the things in terms of currency of uh, mm. value that you were trying to seek out. So, uh, you know, I think we had about 12 or 14 that originated out of that startup. And I, oh. ironically, that startup was originally called Infomatch. We made an acquisition, rebranded ourselves into Mobile 365. We sold the company to Sybase. And Sybase eventually got acquired by SAP. SAP, event, that unit was called the SAP Digital Connect unit. I've just spanned 15 years, by the way. Mm. That's how fast, or, you know, the, the arc. That has now just been acquired by um, one of the leading messaging companies in the world now called Cinch, S-I-N-C-H. So. Mm. I mean, so much has changed in the industry, but there were always these, these gaps, if you like, between systems, between markets, between mindsets. And you have this skill, maybe you, you have an eye for it to operate between the gaps where it could be in the most physical, tangible format, interoperability. But, yeah. it, you know, it takes somebody who sort of lived between Europe and America to see that. that. That doesn't come naturally to people in the same way you've sort of seen that with Asia as well. You yeah, have to have that kind of boundaryless mind. Have never thought of it that way, Graham, which um, reflects the quality of you as an interviewer. Yeah, um, but I'd have to say I'd agree with you in, mm. in that context of mindsets. Um, as a consultant, uh, I often use um, start with the ending. So where is it that you want to be? What do you want to be tomorrow? What do you want to be when you grow up? You know, And uh, where are you today? So let's benchmark the two. And then let's figure out what the gaps are and what are the, there's not just one path to be able to fill the gap. There's many paths to be able to fill the gap. And in the last piece, another thing that I learned in the political world uh, when I ran political campaigns is uh, all resources come down to five factors, time, money, people, talent, and will. And it can be explained as if you have a lot of time and a lot of people, you can do anything. Just look at the Great Wall of China. Hmm. Just look at the pyramids. Okay. But if you don't have a lot of time, then you're going to need a lot of money and you're going to need good talent. And in all these things, you have to have will, you know, that you will continue on that resilience, that resoluteness that hmm. we were talking about earlier to be able to um, 
meet that objective and be able to fill the gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and of all those factors, those resources that we all draw upon um, in any endeavor that we undertake. I mean, I, I've had a lot of thought about this over the almost 25 years since I learned it. Um, the only thing that you can't make is time. Mm. And, uh, you know, wasted time is wasted opportunity, as they say. So the other stuff, you can find talent. Just takes money. You can make money, you know. You can create will, just a matter of how, how dedicated you are to that will. Hmm. Um, but time you can't, you can't recapture, you can't manufacture. We all have the same, yeah. yeah. Democratically assigned. No yes. matter how rich, poor, whatever you have, it's all the same. Indeed. Well, that's why it's so important, isn't it, that we do what we're passionate about, not in a, I know this gets easily hackneyed and people talking about live with passion and, Whilst this is useful to have these prompts and these nudges, I think it really is about how we use our time. Are we enjoying what we're doing? Is this really about what we want to do? I'm not necessarily talking about putting a dent in the universe or finding your why. I'm really talking about doing what makes us happy and what we enjoy doing. And this sort of brings me all the way back to the beginning in your story almost is where you and I share a common thread is selling technology. And we really enjoy doing that, whether that's something we get paid for or something we just get off on, right? And for yeah. you, it was hi-fis, which I think is such a... <laughs> stereos, a as we stereos. would say, on the side of the pond. <laughs> yeah, stereos. How beautiful that was in the days when, you know, those were the high, you know, the equivalent of the iPhones today in terms of consumer electronics, right? Absolutely. But that was, it wasn't about the technology. It was about understanding people and being passionate about people, but also loving the tech behind it as well, but not being a tech guy. Again, it was the, the bridge between two worlds, wasn't it? That yeah. You have that, I know people and I know tech and there's this rare space in the middle where I can operate and know both. Tell us about hi-fi or stereos, as you like to call them. <laughs> well, um, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, um, my father was uh, my father was a lawyer, and uh, he was also an army officer in World War II, which is how he met my mother. My mother hmm. is French, and um, as things go by, uh, I was born when my father was fifty-one. And so went off to college and he was a fairly successful lawyer. But about my junior year, I got a call one day from the bursar's office uh, saying that my tuition hadn't been paid. <clears throat> and <clears throat> excuse me, that was a little bit of a shock. And then started realizing that um, my father was on the early stages of developing dementia. Mm. So had to very quickly pivot uh, going from, you know, you're just a uh, usual lackadaisical type student. Um, I worked in jobs, worked at an ice cream shop, at a pastrami shop, just for pin money, you know, uh, pocket money. Um, and started looking around and uh, first became a teller at a credit union. And I hated that. Um, you know, I didn't see any path, but it was a job. And then one day I was reading in the Sunday newspaper when they used to have want ads. You know, this is mm-hmm. showing how old and dated we are. Um, <clears throat> I'm not that old. You're not. You're even younger. Um, 
the an advertisement for uh, selling stereos at a regional um, hi-fi center, as they used to be called, for a company called CMC Stereo. And regional covered from St. Louis, Missouri to Atlanta, down to Miami, down to Houston. They had about 25 stores. And there happened to be one uh, within a bus ride for me because I didn't own a car at the time. And uh, so I signed up and ironically um, thought that I'd be pretty good at it because I was pretty glib and, and pretty sociable individual. Um, I wasn't there for the stereo, the technology per se. I was there. The, my purpose was this is going to give me the opportunity for unlimited income. <laughs> and um, this is a way for me to be able to um, regain or to gain the resources to pay off my tuition. Um, and I didn't sell anything for six weeks, Graham. Six was it all on commission? Uh, yeah, there was a, a small hourly rate, rate, but it was like selling cars. Hmm. So the upside was really based on margin and volume of sales, uh, and dollar volume is against margin. So, uh, you know, each deal could be a little bit different. Sure, there was the MSRP. And, but as you know, in a car, you don't really drive, walk in and, and Put cash down at some places you do, but um, or pay for what is the sticker price. So it was all negotiating. And prior to to being on the floor, we went through literally three weeks of training. Three weeks of training to sell a stereo. Mm -hmm. Now the stereos could be upwards of five thousand dollars. Five thousand dollars back then is the equivalent of like twenty thousand dollars today. Wow. Okay, you know, adjusted to the to inflation rates. Um, but I didn't sell anything for six weeks and I had gotten hired by the regional manager for all this. And, uh, you know, he and I had a very good relationship. He's like, you know, you got to do something different. Um, you know, he even shadowed me in a couple of times and gave me advice, but he was like, you're not doing anything wrong. We're just not getting the right deal. Now I had been selling small things, but I'm talking about systems as we used to call them. And, um, one night I was talking to uh, I was talking to a prospect. She'd come in and I remember what she looked like. She was probably in her late 40s. She was looking for a very basic stereo system, meaning the receiver as they used to be called, the speakers and a turntable. You know, and a turntable might have been 100 bucks, you know. And now turntables are these high-end stereo mm. audiophile type devices. Um how things change. Uh, and you know, she's like, "Well, I'm not really confident about me being able to set this up, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, overcome objections, provide opportunities, um, tell, don't sell. You know, I'm thinking, okay, hold on a second. We have a truck in the back. <laughs> I don't have a car, but we have a truck. So I went, off, went to the manager of the, of the store and I said, look, I, I got a deal that I think I'm closing, but can I use the truck to deliver it? and install it and he was like sure why not now this is before such things were commonplace mm -hmm. and so that's how i closed my first deal uh six months later i was the number two sales representative in the entire company and uh, had won an award six months later was around christmas time mind you um had won an award um the top five salespeople. this is again how things are different now got cars okay mm. <laughs> now to be the top five you were producing you know i think maybe over a million dollars in sales something along those lines from hi-fi 
Stereo. from hi-fi. Yeah. Wow. But I, I did things like, um, you know, I, my objective, as I said, was not, oh, this is really cool stuff. I did mm. get swooned by the technology as literally one of my technology bosses told me 20 years later. We don't want guys to be swooned by the technology, which is why we don't have engineers running product. We want mm. business guys running product. And that's mm. when I was being moved into a product role inside an operator. That's literally what he said. Um, and so I then approached again the, the uh, district manager and said, look, I want to do something different. I don't need a car. Um, and, you know, this was a Trans Am. This is the other thing that I recall. <laughs> You're in <laughs> your 20s and you Trans turned down the Trans Am? Yeah. <clears throat> wow. Well, I was like 24. Um, yeah. But I also had the wisdom of uh, a very smart girlfriend who's like, you know, you don't need it. We have a car. She had a car now, um, who's now my wife, by the way. Um, and so I negotiated a, a different deal in the context of, can you give me a cash payout? Hmm. Well, that was in their interest too. You know, they were like, okay, sure. You know, this is less hassle and we don't need to have that expense and we'll probably give you less in, you know, looking back more um, cynically, they probably looked at the two payouts and like, yeah, we'll give them the cash. <laughs> it's cheaper. Hmm. And I ended up um, taking that and then being able to return to school part-time and then continued to sell stereos for about the next two years as I was finishing my undergraduate degree. Oh, so It's a great story. That's, great motivation. Yeah. Well. Excuse me. The, um, the takeaway outside of these circumstances is that um, everybody walked in. It was a personal engagement. So everything counted, you know. Your demeanor, what you looked mm. like, how you mm. sounded, um, how eloquent you were, uh, those kind of factors all played out. And mm. luckily, I, uh, I was able to do the right things, use the right processes, the doctrine, the sales doctrine. I remember um, we were trained under the um, Tom Hopkins way of selling, you know, and Tom Hopkins is like this l legacy sales god, like Zig Ziglar, et cetera. <laughs> If you're into that, and I've had to be into that in the past, but you know, solution selling and and it's like evangelical sales, are, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. On a mission. So that's the hi-fi. I love story. it. Graham. It's such a great story. I wonder, like, you know, if you would have fast forward into your career and take us like from that point all the way to doing the biggest deal that you were to do in the communications industry. You know, whether you had that truck moment as well, whether that was still in your head, like, can I use the truck yeah. out the back? Or was it Certainly. just, I'm just scared of losing this deal. I'm just going to make sure we do it to the letter or you negotiating there. Yeah. You know, um, no is just a deferred yes. Okay. Uh, and the reality in that context of being able to take those experiences, um, you know, being resolute in the process. My biggest deal was probably Vodafone uh, when I was inside this startup that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And um, the Vodafone global product lead on the messaging guy was a cantankerous, massive man. He was like six foot five, huge guy. Um, and and uh, took no quarter. 
He was like, no, we're not interested in this. Um, we're, we can do it ourselves, which is always the mentality of the mm. operators in the context of, you know, at one point I was looking at it, we could do it ourselves. But thankfully, that was tempered by the reality of being in Silicon Valley and others in the office were like, we got to get everything that we can get in here. So let's start talking to everybody we can talk to. Let's learn from them and steal from them. And then we can do it ourselves and found that we couldn't do it ourselves. So we just ended up buying or renting. But in the Vodafone context, um, his his uh, overall approach was highly antagonistic to what we were trying to do. And we were, again, what I would characterize as a cockroach startup. We were nothing. You know, mm. There were essentially 15 of us, um, and I was able to get budget to start doing this global travel, You know, targeting Europe first, targeting specific operators, and Vodafone was one of them because it arrayed out to, I think, 16 or 17 different operators at that point. I think they've got over 30 now. Um, and so that that ability to take no and turn it into DS was essentially, okay, let me do this. Um, promise me that you'll talk to me when I come back in three months and I'll give you updates because Vodafone was early on. However, our biggest deal was with Verizon big in, in terms of impact because once we got Verizon, we could go to all the other GSM operators mm. around the world, which was we now have access to that. And I was part of that strategy. But me personally, I was running the Vodafone engagement. And um, 18 months later, Vodafone became a con became a customer of ours. And he had gone 180 degree different perspective because I had kept feeding him. And I also put pressure on him by going to his satellites, his mm. affiliates, um, his marketing partners, you know, and kept coming back to surrounding him with pressure, you know, including Veri Verizon applying pressure on Vodafone indirectly because we were kind of like, you're not benefiting because your parent or your partner doesn't want to do this because of his perspective of the carriers can do it better themselves. So we were able to ride that wave of about a year's of development, a year worth of development. And we went from a million in revenues upwards of by that time, probably 10 million in revenues. So we were gone. We had gotten out of the rank cockroach startup realm into fledgling, trying to fly. And we were also riding the, um, the tsunami wave of adoption of text messaging just as you talked about earlier you know the adoption and usage of text messaging by kids primarily in nordic countries hmm. you know and, and literally there's a great article um about sms in wired magazine of from that era and it's got a picture of a whole bunch of kids on a fountain um and they're not talking to each other texting each other now mm -hmm. we're talking around 2003 maybe is the time frame. And I literally saw that. I was on a trip to Helsinki, you know, and I, the, the the fountain is in the center of the town, you know, and I'm looking at I'm like, oh my God, you know, this is just like the Wire Magazine <laughs> article. It's yeah, it's happening. It's happening mm. right here. And, um, you know, you, you focus on the terrain that you're, you are uh, going across at that moment. Mm. But you've got to be able to raise up above the horizon and see the whole picture. And that goes back to your original comment, closing the circle in the context. Yeah, that's one of the things that I do. I, I 
been prepared for your ultimate question, what's your superpower? (laughs) This is it. This is what we've been talking about, Paul. Yeah. You know, the superpower that I have is essentially being able to observe um, the opportunity and then more importantly, develop the strategy. And then most critically is to be able to plan it and implement it, execute it. You know, Mm -hmm. there are lots of people who are strategists who are what I call ivory tower strategists, but they have no experience on the ground and have an understanding of being able to, this is how we're going to be able to implement it. Going back to start with the part of this is the timeframes you're operating on. I feel talking to you, hearing your story. It's a rare thing for a sales guy to think in 18 month timeframes. Because especially if you're a startup, you're thinking about 18 days. That's yeah. your cash flow <laughs> sorted, right? That's all you've yeah. got, 18 days. So to think 18 months to think about a long term, it's marshmallow test stuff, isn't it? It's like yeah. development of gratification. And that's a rare thing in business. And there are many studies done about this. You look at Jeff Bezos and his 10,000 year clock yeah. you know, about time frames and how they relate to long-term success and growth as well importantly that you can only grow if you're focused beyond what's not important and urgent but what's just important and non-urgent right you know, the stephen covey matrix so that's yeah. really the key here with strategy isn't it that i find and i see this in your history and your career is that not many people operate at that wavelength in that zone because they are so focused on the next three months. And that's why having that experience, bringing it to bear in these situations is so important. Coming from all these different angles, whether it's in politics or in sales or in communications industry, you can see the value of this. Yeah. um, Again, quite an astute observation on your part. In the um, early 90s, a friend of mine who was a Marine officer gave me two little pamphlets that had been written by the uh, Commandant of the Marine Corps. One is called Warfighting, the other is Campaigning. And um, to your point, this Warfighting and winning wars is not done overnight. Hmm. And Campaigning then becomes a matter of how you're able to execute over the long term. And, uh, you know, the ebbs and flows of battles such that they are. You are going to win some and you are going to lose some. And sometimes you lose so that you can advance faster forward or forward faster on the next iteration. Um, you know, and I don't want to, um, by no means am I one of these guys that, yeah, we've got time because I'm just the opposite. As I mentioned earlier, time is so precious. Mm. I'm all about execution. Get it done. I don't want to hear about why you can't get it done. Just get it done. Um, in the context of that long-term horizon. Mm. So, yeah. Absolutely. You've got to have both. Yeah. Well, you know, and even in the context of tracking sales, uh, when I was doing this inside the startup, um, first year, uh, our average sale was around uh, 380 days. Fifth year, we were only down to 270 so you would think that that would be really compressed, hmm. but because of the, uh, at that point, we were selling primarily into mobile network operators, less so enterprises. Enterprise messaging was just starting to emerge around 2005, 2006. Um, so that was the, the time cycles. So once again, you are spot on, my friend. 
Mm. Moving this forward then, Paul, I'm thinking about where you go for your next challenge. There's a great quote, and I'm going to hack it. You're going to have to correct me on this from your Instagram about fear and danger. For a man who looks very respectable, but loves living on the edge <laughs> a little bit, the fear and the, the exhilaration. What was the quote from about fear and danger? Let's go. Yeah, there. I take about fear it. plus danger and turn it into fun plus adventure plus exhilaration. That's, that's your that's, ski instructor that's, mindset. Yeah, that's ski instructor mindset. Piece. I should say skiing slash adventure. I mean, you know, I'm also a certified scuba diver when I was 16. And, you know, I had aspirations, I guess, of being an astronaut or James Bond or whatever. So, but everybody Still did. Still in there then. somewhere. What's the next yeah. challenge then? What's the next challenge for you? You've got, you know, you've got this wealth of experience. You have this ability to operate between borders on these timeframes, which it seems that a lot of people don't have the luxury of thinking about because they're so stuck in the firefighting of day to day, which is like, you know, for any CEO to be able to think on these terms, they need somebody who can pull them out of the, the whirlwind of the day to day of a startup or any sort of large organization that's grown fast. You know, what are the challenges for you? Where do you think you're going to be applying your skills next? Yeah, you know, the, the reality is as you move up the ladder, you've got to be able to change your perspective um, or move up the pyramid, whatever it might be. You know, I've gone from um, selling services and, uh, you know, being involved in high stakes deals in terms of revenue and and sales and now i've moved into consulting to ceos in terms of acquisitions or positioning the company to be either predator or bait in the context of acquisitions and being able to grow um, specifically i've done a number of different projects for clients who are primarily let's say offshore um, whether they might be in southeast asia or might be in the uk or in europe who then want to get into the american market or try mm -hmm. to globalize their business um, you know that's really what i've been involved in most recently especially the globalization of these companies because so many of them started off just as i mentioned the same kind of um, identity as mine starting off small and we've been able to rise the wave ride the wave evolve and get quite big um, and now they're at this um, this existential point of how do we go from being a real strong regional player to a truly international slash truly global player and that's kind of what i'm doing now mm. that's the excitement yeah yeah in the gaps the magic yeah, you know, the the saying essentially is bigger players make bigger impacts. Yeah, so, and bigger mistakes uh, as well. So I imagine the stakes are Hopefully high. you can mitigate the stakes. Um, yeah. But yes, you know, I think 60% of acquisitions fail in terms of post-merger integration over the course of 18 months. So, you know, that just shows bad initial planning mm. um, in my view as, you know, this is all research that's academically driven. But um, yes, you know. There is that risk. Absolutely. But there's risk in crossing the street, man. Yeah. Come on. Exactly. There's no such things as or going off beast, <laughs> slightly enhanced risk. But, but it's about it, managing risk. It's, it's about having, like, we can't live without risk, can we? We can't. Yeah, it, we need it. Right. Is how, and, how you, how you know, sort of crossing the street. It. 
crossing the street is you, there's a crosswalk. There's a device mm. that's going off, on, off, on, you know, walk, don't walk, etc. You know, in the same respect relative to skiing, it's about skills, technique, teaching. Uh, I mean, to be able to get to that, that was like 10 to 15 years of we would, as a ski instructor, you show up early, you ski with your friends, but you ski with your friends not just going off, you ski with your friends. One is training mm. and training everybody else. So we're constantly honing the edge to get sharper and sharper, at least the place that I worked at. Um, and so you then apply those skills. And thankfully, I had the opportunity to be able to go to places that had, you know, 20,000 vertical instead of 500 vertical, mm. <laughs> you know, and part of that was, you know, you, we were talking about con. Uh, I think I've gone four times, gone skiing before going to the events that were held in con, you know, when we used to do that, which was not the Mobile World Congress, GSMA something. I can't remember yeah. the name of them. Um, and then when it shifted to Barcelona, also did that a few times, but um, you take advantage of it when you can. I've skied in China, uh, having lived in China some time ago, uh, also for work. So uh, you take advantage of those opportunities as they present themselves. Yeah, a man who embraces adventure and fully <laughs> takes it on. I think that's the, you know, it's great. I love talking to you because I think there's always something that I learn about your story that you haven't revealed <laughs> until this point. So I didn't know about the scuba diving. So that's another one. That's, you know, this is another podcast, Paul. But I feel that it's like you've done so many things, you know, that uh, you're ironically somebody who lives and breathes sales and growth and revenue generation isn't a naturally blowing his own trumpet about what he does. You know, you're quite, you know, I'd say moderate in terms of how you describe yourself. But I think if people will, will look at your resume, they can see what you've done. I think that's the point, yeah. isn't it? You just, You've done so many things, but you haven't really talked about it. Right. Uh, I, I, you know, there are a couple mantras, humility and agility. Hmm. Um, I'm accomplished, but I'm not arrogant. Uh, you know, and the, the reality of that is that um, sometimes I may, may, may be holding something back about me that <laughs> you may find interesting. As my wife told me many, many years ago, you know, she, she said, you're great cocktail fodder. <laughs> you know, you, I'll just put you into a cocktail scenario and, and you yeah, just can yeah, entertain yeah. people all day long. You're a challenge. <laughs> That's what they like. They love that. So there's always something interesting. Well, about you know, it, it, so much of, you know, let's say in business, in the context of, of what we do, everyone's looking for that linear role player. You mm. know, um, I, they, as I joke with others, you know, you're looking for 12 boxes out of 10 that you need. Mm. Um, let's roll it back. So um, at times that uh, eclectic background doesn't get processed well. Mm. So well, it's I think this easily is what it's all about now. Everything else we can give to the machines. The eclectic well, yes. stuff is really the, the, what do they call it? Range now. That's what they talk yeah. about. Range is really what we need to train the next generation in, right? So this is it. And, and even there, if I may, uh, I know we're going a little long, but the, the other piece that I bring to the table, because of all this exposure, you know, let's go back to the international pieces and that ability to go cross border. That vision, that strategic outlook is as much about integrating various silos. So when you start talking about company management and how you integrate the chief technology office with the chief sales office with the chief marketing office and 
in the chief product office, which doesn't really happen. I've been in scenarios where I landed, mm. you know, in jobs. I'm like, you guys don't even talk to each other. And yet I'm responsible for selling this. This is going to change. <laughs> and you, you know, that becomes, they get a little squirmy about that, but that's the, um, the falseness, let's see, the false profit that, you know, if we just get all these guys who are so focused on one thing that it's going to be all combining when in fact it doesn't, and it takes a certain skill to be able to negotiate that and see it and then integrate it, plan it and execute it, which is mm. what I bring to the table, at least what I try to bring to the table. Oh, I think you do. Paul Rupert, everybody. Paul, where do we go and find out more about you? Uh, well, you can contact me directly at prupert888 at gmail.com. And there are two P's in my last name, Rupert, not like Rupert the Bear in the UK. Um, you can also find out more about some of the projects that I've been involved in at uh, www.globalpointview.com or at paulrrupert.com. You've been listening to the XL Podcast with me, Graham Brown. To subscribe and discover more conversations, go to www.xlpodcast.org.